What is up, Asymmetry? How y'all doing? Gathering today to walk through the Pacific Bonsai Expo with Jonas Dupuy and Eric Schrader, the two organizers of this massive West Coast Bonsai Exhibition coming to us in November in Oakland, California. If you don't know about it, visit PacificBonsaiExpo.com online. Tickets are on sale. Uh, information about the venue, places to stay. I can tell you as a juror, it will be the highest collection of quality bonsai that's ever been amassed in North America. I couldn't be more proud to have been a juror, but also to be taking part and getting to sit down with Eric and Jonas uh, answered so many questions about what their intentions were uh, and how this whole thing is going to go down. And I couldn't be more excited uh, having gotten the opportunity to really talk it through with them and, and learn more about it. We also dig into their both of their prolific field-growing methodologies, thought processes, etc., just as a moose-bouche for the expo discussion. Sit back, relax, and enjoy yourselves and get excited for a very major event in North American Bonsai. We'll see you all there in November. Jonas and Eric coming to us live from their bonsai bunker in a hidden domain. What's that little What's that little sweetheart sitting on the boxes behind you? I, I was just telling Jonas that it's like a, a cute little clump of pines. I think he just stuck them together five years ago, and they're... Uh, that's badass. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty nice. Oh, that's so cool. That's sweet. I mean, like, you don't see much like that. No, nobody does that. That's freaking awesome. Maybe Jonas wants to send that up to Mirai. <laughs> he's a, he's got a pretty good he's got a pretty good uh batch of batch of pines in the in the yard right now. Both of you guys are growing some of the coolest stock in North America. It's freaking awesome. I don't know like what I, it, it's really interesting. It's really neat to see what you're what you're making. I mean, it's the gro growing things. I have such a respect for people who grow from scratch because it's like, well, the world is your oyster. I mean, like, what do you want to make today kind of a thing? The purpose of this uh, oh. call is for you to divulge all of your secrets, and then we will end the call immediately after. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know what? If if you guys are going to take up growing, I, I'm all for it. I'll, uh, <laughs> we're not. We're not going to take up growing. <laughs> we're going to leave it to people who do it much better than we ever could, which is the two of you. <laughs> I've, I think I'm uh, outstripping Jonas numbers-wise at this point by uh, a two orders of magnitude. By a wide margin, yeah. yeah. What's up, Jonas? How are you, man? Hey, Jonas. I'm good. Good. How are y'all's? We're doing great. I'm. 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 I was expressing my deepest desire to own that little clump of pine behind you guys. What a what a charming little little piece. It's just awesome. I think charming is the exact word, uh, Eric. Yeah. Used. I just I walked in. I was like, oh, that's looking great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what what is the what is I mean cuz I didn't uh, this wasn't what I anticipated talking with you guys about but I just have to ask what is it about growing bonsai particularly from scratch that has appealed to both of you? You first. <laughs> Wait, we're both you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> the best part about exactly that. exactly it. <laughs> I'm still struck by the fact that we only get one of your eyes, Ryan. You're like cut right down. Oh, the is that true? Oh, here I can I can change that. I, I t you know, Ira smells bad, so I try to stay away from him if I can. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sweating here at Mariah <laughs> compared to my to former talk. job. How's that? Is that better? That's fantastic. I don't, I don't look so alien anymore. Okay, 
Right. Uh, yeah, but to your to your question, I don't I don't know. I mean, like from day one studying with Boone, I like Jim Gremmel was my idol, and I really wanted to just soup to nuts. I just wanted to I just wanted to do the whole thing, and I actually I've told numerous people that I. I start to get a little bit bored when the tree starts to look finished. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, Hey, you want this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you maintain a lot of finished trees or is that kind of your cutoff where you're like, all right, I've done it. And it sounds to me like you're growing more and more. Are you moving farther away from finished trees? Not really. It's, I think the mix has changed a little bit. I've, I had what, probably about a, probably about a hundred finished trees that I've been growing for, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 years. And, uh, I, I've kind of to fund the larger growing operation phase in, uh, sold that down to probably 40, something like that. Oh, 30, wow. 40. So I keep a collection and my, you know, the stuff I keep for myself obviously is the stuff that I'm most interested in. So out of, the first batch of black pines that I grew, I only have two left. They're both kind of 18 inch kind of size. Both one's a exposed root cascade and the other one's a root over rock. He calls it the horse. The horse? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Cool. What about you, Jonas? Well, you know, I grew up liking Japanese landscapes and garden stuff. Just growing up in a family nursery, I always liked the look. And so I've been a fan of pines forever long before I took an interest in bonsai. And I remember I was talking with Boone one day and I said, why aren't there more black pine bonsai? And he said, well, you can't bring them in from Japan. And I very quickly did the math. If we don't start growing them now, we'll never have them. Uh-huh. It, it was that simple. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, now, did Boone teach you guys how to grow or like, where did you amass the skill? Because like I look at Telperion, which, you know, Chris and Gary kind of, it took a while for them to figure out. I think Gary brought a lot of, of knowledge into their operation, but really like as far as growers across North America, I mean, I do look at the two of you growing some of the best bonsai and, and it's like, how do, how do you learn how to do that? There's a lot of people that aspire to do it well. Yeah, we found that close to precisely zero books teach you how to grow stuff from scratch. All books assume there's already a bonsai which is funny considering how many people starting out would love to grow a little something off to the side. Right. I think, you know, to your question about Boone, I, you know, one of the things I, one of the lessons I got from Boone early on was basically bringing in a black pine that had a two inch trunk and him looking at it and just being like, this is garbage. And by the time you finish fixing all the things that are wrong with this tree, you could have grown a better one from scratch. So I think it really was, he influenced people to do growing projects, but he also wanted you to have show trees. So mm-hmm. he, he wouldn't let you just do one or the other. Mm-hmm. And he actually didn't spend a lot of time on the growing trees. So in February of 1994, Boone and I sat down at his kitchen table with Bonsai Today, number 12 and 20 on the table. Well, let's start here. And uh, he was a great guide. And so I would go to someone with no growing experience, but good bonsai experience to learn how to grow. Mm-hmm. Desirable because traits in the tree and what you're looking for. If you don't know where you're going and you don't have the technique to fully understand how a good tree is put together, good luck growing. It's hard. Yeah, I think Boone, Boone didn't like doing the early growing, 
he liked doing middle development more than than early growing. And I think so he, you know, around showtime, he was very focused on show prep and polishing trees up. And some of those trees were imports. Some of those trees were just old American trees. But so, yeah, like like you said, Jonas, he didn't really like doing the growing, but he loved it when you showed up with a tree that was unique and that you had that you had grown yourself or, you know, gotten from someone who had just done it in their backyard. And then over the last 10, 15 years, many trips to Japan, I visit as many growers as possible. Uh, Daisaku Nomoto has been super helpful when he comes over to the country. I have often had him just do a once over with all of my trees. And he works with a lot of people who are kind of backyard growers. And even in Japan, some of the absolute best trees of some species are actually cultivated rather than collected. And so he's seen these trees at different stages. And uh, I've been lucky enough to, I mean, I've known him 23 years now. And so for a long time, I've been able to get tips from him. And, and, and does does he grow or is he just advising sort of the hobbyists like like a bonsai collective or something like that? Or like, how does that work for him? He definitely would not count as a grower, but a lot of his clients do. And so he actually put together a tour down in Kyushu for me. Uh, he said, you know, I was going to take you to all my best clients' houses, but you've been to Kokofu, you've been to Taikon 10, you've seen good trees. I'm going to take you to all the growers. And on this one trip, he took me to this guy that grew the best pine trunks that he knew of in Japan. And another guy, the best pine branches. Ironically, they live down the road from each other. This one guy had a tree from seed into Kokofu uh, within 30 years or something. Wow. Wow. So this is pretty high level growing. Oh, new one? No, different guy. Okay. But uh, what's funny is they were all hobbyist growers. They, the, it turns out the big commercial growers are less likely to produce the super high quality stuff. It's when people do smaller batches in their backyards for fun. That's when the trees get the attention. That's when you see the quality really shoot up. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, uh, Taiga Rushabata used to talk about that. I would go to his, you know, a few times I visited his, he and his father's nursery in, in uh, Shizuoka. And, uh, and I would be like, man, you guys are growing these things. And he said, there's no way we're growing those things. These are all, these are all my father's clients growing, you know, shimpaku and colanders in their backyard and just putting the utmost attention into each piece. And then once they grow them on, that's their passion to produce it. They're, they don't want to finish it or have show trees necessarily. They're just growing great material. And then his father would buy them from him and they would carry them on. And I just thought, wow, that's so fascinating. You know, that sort of uh, dynamic of the different divisions of the process in Japan, whereas sort of in North America, it, feel, it feels a little bit more like uh, a jack of all trades, kind of a, a bonsai culture. And it's funny you mentioned Taiga specifically because he is he has a quasi secret collection of long term junipers he's growing from scratch. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. That doesn't so that doesn't surprise me. He's 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 got he's got a lot of little aces up his sleeve from from my experience. Lives, yeah, he lives very close to one of the better young pine growers in Japan too, and so he does have access to some of that material. But uh, a good shohin juniper, you can grow world class in it it has to be slow grown. So it's a 20 to 30 year project and you can pretty much win a prize in just about any show you name. Since smaller trees tend to be cultivated, larger trees are much better off field grown or just better yet collect them from the mountains. But for small trees, the odds that you're going to find something in the landscape 
or field grown, your, your, your odds just get really tiny. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Taiga is doing a fantastic job on this batch of junipers. Interesting. That's interesting. So, so when you guys grow stuff and, and maybe, maybe you're too, I, I, I feel like, uh, at least lo- from the outside looking in, it seems like you guys collaborate quite a bit or, or, or have a good friendship relationship. Maybe you hate each other. I don't know. Uh, but it doesn't seem that way. We're here to suss that out. Yeah. We're, we're trying to tease that out, <laughs> but, uh, we'll get to the bottom of this. yeah, exactly. By the end of this, we should know, um, <laughs> How much control, how much control are you trying to, on a tree that is, you know, from a seedling or from a cutting, how much control of its final shape are you implementing uh, in the early stages? And how early would you implement that kind of control or direction? Yeah. That's that's literally the question. (laughs) Oh, is it? Well, I'm glad I asked it then. Yeah, that is the question. Join us next time. Just to... (laughs) use the uh to use the most common example between the two of us which is a you know probably a small to medium sized black pine that's most of you know numbers wise what we're producing um i think starting from the seed i am growing them and so i'm germinating the seeds in a greenhouse i don't use the seedling cutting technique anymore because it's a waste of time as far as i can tell and um they're germinated in Anderson flats on mesh benches so that they air prune on the bottom. They don't, they can't, the roots can't run. And so I pull those seedlings out of the flats and they pretty much have, I mean, I've sent pictures to Jonas before. I was just like, look at this. This is fantastic. Did it all by itself. Um, so from those kinds of things through, I guess the biggest batches of trees that I have right now are three-year-old pines. And at that stage, so this, you know, earlier this summer, I already basically selected the sacrifice branches and pruned them all back. Everything other than the sacrifice branch, pruned it all back uh, to start building just like a little kind of pin cushion of branch options right near where I want it. But I guess that's all to a certain end. Like every one of those trees is probably going to be showing size or slightly larger than showing size. And my favorite, my favorite styles are really Exposed root and root over rock. So I do a bunch of those as well. Mm. A lot of it is where do you want to end up? If you want to end up with a tree that has um, graceful taper and few scars, you put in the effort up front. If uh, you think awkward or we'll just say dramatic uh, changes in uh, taper and large scars don't turn you off, then it doesn't matter. And so it's really, you just get to pick the end and, you know, we often, when we're teaching classes, just help people, hey, where do you want to be? We'll help you get there. There's different approaches for those. Huh. It's actually, it's really hard to get people to commit to an idea. Like when you're, when you're like, okay, this is a growing project. You can do anything you want. Think it's a ball of clay. And then you're like, well, wh- how big of a tree do you want? Oh, I don't know, maybe 12 to 18 inches. I'm like, well, <laughs> they're two whole, entirely different things. Right, right, right. And 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 do you do you put movement into your material through wire when it's young or are you using and i'm assuming you probably do both do you use you know sort of clip and grow or directional pruning to add that movement i think initially wiring but i think that there's a lot of clip and grow that goes into it it's just that the clip and grow is so slow that you almost want to you want to take advantage of the wiring. So like at a, as a two-year-old or even as a one-year-old, I wire pine seedlings. Um, but 
it depends on how tight you want the movement to be. So if I'm creating shoheen trees, then I want that movement to be pretty tight. Not so tight that it would kind of form a like a knot essentially, but tight enough that you get that scale, the the whole curve into the first four inches of your tree, I guess. Um, and then, and then the clip and grow kind of comes later. Yeah. It's the bigger the tree, the less control you need. Mm -hmm. And so for medium and large trees, you don't need to put as much attention into that for smaller trees. Yeah. You've got to do a lot. If you're growing junipers from scratch, if you ever want to have twisting deadwood, you're going to use wire. Clip and grow is just not going to get you that. And so, um, because we're focusing on shoheen, honestly, because the horizon is so much shorter, we're doing a lot more control and a lot more uh, wiring because you just, you're not going to get a naturally twisting, turning, undulating trunk by letting it go because junipers have such a strong straight habit. Same thing with like a crab apple or a quince. Those things just shoot out. They'll grow four or five feet in a year. Even if you're growing shoheen, they'll grow four or five feet in a year. And they're pretty straight if you don't get some movement in there. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of throwing away stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it, it was broken down. Peter Warren and I talked about this, you know, when we were apprenticing in Japan together. Uh and he he had a lot more exposure to growers studying with Kobayashi because Kobayashi, you know, an integral part of that apprenticeship was taking his apprentices to every bonsai operation that he visited and and really focusing on the business and the value of material and the process. Whereas Mr. Kimura um, was a lot more focused on his process and his garden and his apprentices being really dedicated to his approach. So I didn't have the exposure to the breadth of bonsai knowledge that, that Peter did. And Peter was saying, you know, when you look at a lot of the growers, there's sort of like a pyramid of quality that inevitably occurs in a growing operation, which coming back to what you just said, Eric, you're like, you know, there is some discarded failures, obviously, but, you know, that peak, that pinnacle sort of product of growing at a highest level is going to be your smallest percentage of the overall number of trees that you're producing. Uh, that middle ground of like decent trees is going to be fairly chunky, but you're going to have a big base of failures. And I'm curious if that is is accurate or how that shape of that pyramid maybe becomes more cylindrical or or maybe inverts the the better that you get it growing in terms of what the byproduct of your effort is in, in the end of that process. If your previous question was the question, this is the secret question. This is my secret to growing right here. Uh, it's, it's the other side of the coin. Uh-huh. You know, if we want to talk about failure, I, I'll admit right here that um, never I have that. <laughs> <laughs> you sometimes you learn from your mistakes, but sometimes it's the fifth time you made a mistake that you actually learn from it. But uh, we had a we had a late season frost in like for the Bay Area. It was really late, like March, say, and I had already transplanted. I want to say about five thousand one year old Japanese black pines into three inch growing containers and maybe it was a little bit less than that. I don't know. But, uh, but talk about failures like that frost hit and I didn't have time to like cover everything. Like I was covering stuff, but I think I lost about 2,500 one year old pines. Ugh. Like literally they just like, getting. <laughs> so you talk about the bottom of the pyramid. Those, those were dead at year one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you would rather lose them at year one than year 
eight in any other year. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so the shape of the pyramid is really going to reflect probably your batch size and your goals. I think we're used to talking about the pyramid because the average grower has large numbers of trees. Anyone that has more than a hundred in any single batch, they're not aiming for top quality because I don't know anyone that has the time to give every single piece of attention to that. And so if you put a little less into it, you're going to have your basic pyramid shape where you're, you know, culling the top few great ones off. And that's the average approach, whether you're container or ground growing. And for the people who are more the backyard hobbyists who are doing a batch of six, 12, 25 trees, that's so much more manageable. Then you can get a much, much higher percentage. Mm. Another related lesson to that is a lot of failed trees, depending on the nature of the failure, death is not one you can overcome. <laughs> but you can, it's, I'm often surprised at how add a little bit of time and you can fix the flaws. So the, for example, the black pine that I showed at the Artisan's Cup seven years ago was a tree that was the absolute worst tree from the first batch I ever started back in 94. So uh, I thought to myself, I need to get this off the property. This is a piece of crap. I cut all the branches off and I cut the roots back as hard as I could because it had these huge finger-sized roots. It was The roots were so big, I couldn't get it in the pot. I literally squeezed the root base, jammed it in the pot. And when I let go, that held the tree in place in the pot. Nice. <laughs> so 12 months later, it just happened to pop buds every single place I needed it. The roots all lived. And within two years, it was probably my best little tree. Repotting and techniques 101. It makes a difference, doesn't it, Ira? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of it is luck. And you can hedge with technique helps you hedge against luck. And that's one of those cases where I had completely given up and I was probably right to give up, but with a little more effort and a smaller batch size, you can get some good results. Yeah. I think, I think that, you know, like continuing your way up the pyramid all the way to the top, at least by year three, I'm already kind of setting aside the ones that are the most interesting, at least at that stage, which is maybe less than 10%. Uh, something just catches my eye and then I, I take that and kind of think, okay, what can I do with this to make it even more interesting? And rather than just sort of sitting on your laurels, you kind of think, okay, well, if I do this now, you know, step one is done, step two is done, step three is done. Now I need to figure out what can I do to make this more interesting? That, that's the part that really becomes fun. Like that's the, that's the part that like is the reward of all the work that went into like the hundreds that really didn't, don't have that much of a promise mm -hmm. to them. And you'll love this because we both avoid the concept of cookie cutter, like the plague. I'm going to take the one that's different, double down on that. Oh, that trunk's going right where I want it to be. Well, what if we just cut that off and grow it from that weird branch sticking out the side? That's the tree that I want to invest in. Here's the part you'd appreciate. I visited, uh, Kenji Miyata's growing operation, you know, the one Japanese bonsai professional full-time in the States. Actually, no, there might be a couple now, but Kenji has the ability to reproduce precise branch patterns, tree to tree to tree. He had full benches with 25 pines that had the same trunk. And I think he read John Naka's book. It was like left, right, left branch, right branch, back branch, left, right, back. And I'm just, they were awesome, but I would almost be disappointed if I had one of those quote perfect trees because it felt kind of boring, but that dude had the technique and the patience to make row after row 
of the close your eye picture a pine tree. He could just do that. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. That is amazing. That, that, I, it, it is a skill set in itself to be able to do that with that accuracy and consistency. That That's the thing is like people speak about it in a derogatory fashion but it's like hey can can you do that it's like it's like creating a a beautiful formal upright it's like that's what i'm just gonna say i think between the two of us we have one mediocre formal upright to our name after thousands of trees so far and a combined 50 years of growing yeah yeah and my first batch of trees i took the one that had the best nabari and started making it into a formal upright and Boone told me to bend over the the sacrifice yeah. branch to the back so that you can stack basically sacrifice branches to create the taper. And I thought, okay, that, that sounds like it'll work. And the Nabari was going really well. And then, you know, five years or six years later, I turned the tree 90 degrees and I'm looking at it like, well, now the trunk from the left and right side is twice as wide as it is from the front <laughs> because all that wood was going down the back side. And I'm like, that didn't work. So, I mean, I kept working on it for, for 15 years, I think, and it was turning into an okay formal upright, but formal upright, man, yeah. that is so hard to make. Yeah. Yeah. yeah fine. Cryptomeria, I've had much better luck, but yeah, pine formal upright, that's... I mean, just good luck. Off. Good luck building the taper yeah. because it's all about the taper. That's... Tape, and the taper and straightness. You got to keep it straight while you build the taper. Like that's, it's almost impossible. Yeah. It's a Zen cone, I think. <laughs> I, I think the slow burn is probably the only way that you can really get a good formal upright. And by slow burn, I mean like, a, a, you know, 20, 30, 40 year project. No, I, I think I mean like five generations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your gift to the next generation. Yeah. God, that's fascinating. You a lot of formal upright pines in any country. Like they're just, there's only so many. Well, so, but even talking about like i hear you saying you're steering clear of like the the sort of repetition of form you know and there is like a merit and a discipline to like being able to repeat form but how how when you're growing so many trees do you not slip into patterns uh, because it almost inevitably at least if you go look at the growers in japan like down in shikoku and some of the you know takamatsu and it's, it's like there is a each grower has their 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 three greatest hits that sort of fill the entire uh space and i don't see that same repetition w- with what you guys are growing from the limited exposure that i have to it but i would think that would be challenging it's 100% mental that one it's literally most people when creating young trees put the exact same curves on their trees because if you wire with similar technique all the branches on a tree and bend them that branch is going to have a natural limit to how far it can go and that's going to determine the look of the tree if they're building a tree by bending if you're building a tree by growing a branch out over you know generations of cut regrow cut regrow you can get really good movement and real fun so I find that if you sit down to 100 trees that all need wiring and they're all the same thickness, you know going into it, they're all going to be exactly the same because you can only, you have so many degrees you can get on that bend. So you just have to force yourself, well, these I'm going to wire this way, those I'm going to wire the other way. This one I'm going to wire tighter, this one looser. This one these spirals, this one those spirals. This one I'm going to see if I can break it and maybe it'll live. And there, there are, a, depending on the species or the age, a million different ways, but it's almost all mental and it's living with failures oh that didn't work well let's just see where we go from there because otherwise you're right the pattern is i'm going to make the same tree again and again and again and young deciduous keep coming to mind because 
it's so easy to reproduce the same tree with young deciduous. You just blew my mind. Just blew my mind. <laughs> I, super I think fascinating that was fascinating. Yeah. Different different directions of wire, different pitches to your uh, turns. And it's, yeah, I've never thought about that before. Not once in my life. Yeah, effectiveness can only be gauged by your goal when you're wiring. And so, yeah, there is a right answer, but only based on your goal. And that's why I think teaching someone in a workshop how to wire is probably the most unfair task we've ever set. You need to, physically, they need to know how to manipulate the wire. They need to know where the branch is going to end up or they won't know how to apply it and how to spiral it. It's like you need to know what's customary for that species, what's customary for that age. You need to know everything to put on a single super effective wire. So you pick your battles, you start somewhere, you have them do it, you watch what they do and you, you improve it from there. So it's teachable, but it's funny how much you need to know to effectively wire any one branch. Mm. I, I think to make really good trees or to make all of your trees different, I consciously, when I was doing my first batch, made a lot of effort to say like, okay, this one's going to be a formal upright. This one's going to be exposed root and, and so on. But I think since then, you know, having worked out what my favorite styles are, I tend to think like, okay, this is going to be that, or, you know, this is going to be that. So it's just like you're saying, basically, they're kind of going into three, you know, greatest hits or three buckets or something like that. Um, but growing is really kind of like a chess match. I think, you know, like you, if you think about a chess match, there's only like, what, I guess there's 10 different moves or 12 different moves you can make on round one. So, but then it just becomes infinite after that. And I, so I think it's that repetition of work that's really important and building, you know, building from step one to step two to step three. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you start to have something that's interesting and then you take that interesting thing, like Jonas was saying, and you, you say, okay, well, that's not good enough. I'm going to, I'm going to do something else to this tree to make it even more interesting. And then the other thing that I've come up with recently, because I now actually have not just me wiring trees is to just give up control hmm. and let somebody else yep. do it. And you say, okay, that's, that looks okay. But I think I would make that turn a little bit tighter or, you know, you didn't get quite enough movement, uh, you know, like that's two two dimensional rather than three dimensional, or or you know anything like that. Because as soon as you put it in somebody else's hands and you're looking at it, not like something you did, but something that you're critiquing, then it gives you a different perspective on on what was created. Yeah, yeah. Another great shortcut is uh, there are very few trees in my garden that haven't been worked on by helpers at some point, mm. and that's just a great way to get variation. I really like the way Michael Hagedorn said it. He said, you know, at any given time, try to imbue your trees with good information. And so it's not like you're making a tree. At no point in time have I said, I'm going to make a tree that looks like this when I'm done. It's like, no, at any given step, I do what the tree needs. I have no idea what these are going to become. But I have identified the size and often the style, but the exact look is going to come with time. Yeah, Michael Hagedorn dropping dropping deep thoughts on us. That guy always has the right thing to say at the right time. The other funny thing about it is that there's a funny hubris that comes with bonsai in that we think we have any control whatsoever over how our trees grow. No human being has ever made growth on a tree. The trees actually grow themselves. They do just fine. We can only do two things in bonsai. We can remove foliage 
or rearrange foliage. The tree is the thing that grows. And so despite our best efforts and intentions, we can like throw our will at the tree as much as we want, but then it's going to make buds. It's going to grow. And yeah, we have control over that, but it's the tree doing the work. And so being able to see what the tree has done in response to our work, that to me is really the fun because it just gives you a different chessboard every time it's your turn to move. Yeah. How, how much genetic diversity do you see coming out of the seedlings uh, that, that you're growing pines from? Like, do you ever see something just ra- radically mutated or, or completely like a complete anomaly? Uh, I guess I'll field that one because yeah. I was just showing Jonas uh, a couple days ago when he came over to my house. I, I picked up a pine tree and showed it to him and, and I said, what do you, you know, what do you think of this? And, and he looked at it. He's like, yeah, it looks like a three-year-old pine. I was like, no, take a look at it. And the one-year-old needles were, it was a Japanese black pine seed. The one-year-old needles were sure enough an inch long. And I thought to myself, well, that could happen just culturally speaking. So let me see what happens next year. Sure enough, the, the two-year-old needles were like one inch long and the three-year-old needles were like one inch long. And I'm like, okay, you know, this might not be a genetic anomaly, but it very well may be because three consistent years of short needle growth. And not only that, the needles were kind of like fatter than a regular black pine needle, mm-hmm. kind of chunky looking. So I think in small seed batches, at least in the characteristics you're going to see in seedlings, you it's like kind of one in a thousand that it becomes like more of an outlier not one in a hundred uh but later i think that one of the things that's really hard as a grower to control are mature characteristics because they don't exist in the seed lane so you get to year 10 and all of a sudden you're like wait where's the bark and and to that end, I've been trying, basically I'm growing an orchard tree, right? You know, the tree that has the best bark for Japanese black pines, I stuck it in the ground and I'm harvesting cones from it every year because I know it makes good bark. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't, if I buy the seed, I have no idea what the bark's going to look like 20 years from now. And there's, that's just too long to wait. Yeah. And on a micro scale, I'd say that even out of 10 trees, it might be that no two are identical in terms of the genetic when you're growing from seed. And so I have often stood maybe, I remember one day really specifically, I wanted to cool my collection. I lined a bunch of four foot tall pines up against a fence and I stood 15 feet away and you can really see the different growth habits. And so you're looking, how high is the neck between the base of the bud and the new needles? What angle do the needles come out? What angles do the buds grow out? And there are actually a lot of very subtle characteristics. And I'd say most of those can contribute to make really good bonsai, but some of them, if you have a choice, get them out of your collection as absolutely fast as possible. And so that kind of culling, we're paying attention to that all the time. When you're, If you're doing a longer term, because you just don't want to invest the time if it's not going to pay off. Yeah, the, the, neck, the neck length is mentioned in that Bonsai Today 20 article, and um, it it's funny because as a grower, it's not that important, but then in, when you refine it in the end game, when you're trying to do the refinement, if you're trying to make a small tree and it's got like half the candle comes out with no needles on it, that becomes a real issue later. And, uh, so yeah, I do pay it. Like think, I think Jonas actually might've taught me that. <laughs> yeah. And on that topic, the worst flaw I ever found is I had a tree with perfect needles, beautiful habit. It made a beautiful bonsai. It lacked one characteristic. It would not, for anything, produce back buds. 
And I mean, I, so I call that, that was like for me, a 18 year lesson or 20 year lesson. Like how many years from scratch did I have to grow a tree to learn this lesson? And I'm fine with two, three, four, five year lessons, but that was a good 15, 20 year lesson. And it just got frustrating. That tree is just going to get bigger and bigger because decandling it is, you're not going to get anything past decandling. And I, how much time do you have? There's a lot of techniques for getting back buds on pines. Nope, not this tree was not having it. And that happens sometimes. I think the best example I've seen of that was that my friend Bernard, who's in Western San Francisco, so budding is a little bit less reliable. He took two young pines and stuck them in a, in a bunjin pot and wanted to grow them really slow to be like a twin trunk bunjin that was only going to be like, you know, 16, 18 inches high. And five years on, one of them was just absolutely covered in branches. And the other one had like two sprigs at the top. Same, they're in the same pot, mm. exact same conditions. And one of them just won't back butt, And the other one is like, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> that, do you... Do you feel like uh, like there's a level of appreciation of these nuances in in North American bonsai? I've heard no one other. I've heard no one teach this this level of subtlety. I think you know it's kind of like your your baseline of quality. Like you have to build the baseline of people's understanding yeah. to 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 a certain point before they can get to that next that middle tier of understanding of like oh these are the things that are actually going to make a difference when I get further on in the process. So I think, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do with my operation is just build that foundation, like give people the right genetic material, give people, you know, the right start so that, I mean, I used to buy pine seedlings from nurseries where I would take them out to do root work and they'd obviously been grown in a plug. So there's like this little tornado of roots that I can't correct right underneath the soil and it's a two-year-old tree and I can't fix what they've done to it. Mm-hmm. It's like that kind of stuff, just building that foundation that I think uh, will allow people to move past those basic problems to, to more interesting problems, essentially. Yeah, when you're growing a bonsai, starting with a bonsai, you know, the assumptive starting point of every single bonsai book and article in every magazine, just about, you're past the stage of selecting for genetics. If you're collecting a tree, you're not, worried that much about genetics you want that deadwood you want that movement and you know you can graft later on if you want and so there just aren't many opportunities for people to learn those lessons and it's kind of that stuff you learn in the trenches from doing it yeah yeah that's fascinating it's fascinating to think about because i look at um uh masayuki fujikawa is a senpai of mine who studied with mr kimura and he came to mirai uh, a few years ago and we, we, you know, he and I had always kind of talked about even, you know, during my apprenticeship when he would come back periodically and visit Mr. Kamur and whatnot, you know, he would always sort of, he would always sort of insinuate these deeper levels of knowledge that, I, that Mr. Kamura, not being a grower, you know, very much a finisher, a styler, sort of, a, you know, I would say an exhibition artist in Japan. Um, you know, Mr. Fujikawa would talk about these nuances from growers and of genetics and talking about Takayama and Fuyoin and the genetics of his trident maples that were just so superior that, you know, that was really what led to the success of Fuyoin was was Takayama's focus on on genetics. And th- these were things, you know, like um, I remember a, a group of uh, Italian bonsai practitioners coming to Mr. Kramer's during the Kokfu and one of them had bought a, a trident maple at the Green Club. 
And Mr. Kamara walked up and he called us all over to this tree and he told us how crappy this tree was that this guy had bought because it was a trident that had, you know, the sort of the genetics to swell more than than heal more smoothly and less aggressively and how this tree was never going to be refinable as a shoheen and stuff. And it's just like every time, and I'm having this experience right now talking with you guys, every time you're exposed to that next level of depth in the bonsai pursuit, you know, the world opens up a little bit more to your awareness of what's possible. It becomes a little bit more fascinating. And I, I'm so happy we're having this conversation. We actually wanted to talk to you guys about the Pacific Bonsai Expo, but then having both of you here, like I just, and this pine, the pine in the background, honestly, Jonas catalyzed this whole conversation (laughs) of like, oh, these guys are like so deep into what they do and doing it at such a high level. And you've both invested so much study into it that like the conversation went there and I just couldn't be more thankful that it did because it's like, oh yes, that's right. There are levels to the game. There are depths to this pond that are, you know, yet to be explored in North America and Japan and the bonsai culture there has been going for such a prolonged period of time, but also the culture lends itself to the pursuit of perfection. And that is what I think has contributed to a lot of the, there's a prolificness, which is what you guys are saying. The more that you grow, the more you're exposed to this, the more you care about it, the more attention you pay to it, the more you value it, right? Um, And then there's also like, I think, a predisposition of a culture focused on the pursuit of perfection with the understanding you're never going to get there, but you're going to try awfully hard over your career to get there, where that really led to that degree of knowledge creating the bonsai that inspire us out of Japan. But it's really rewarding to hear both of you talking like this because you're you are doing this in North America and opening up this information to raise people's awareness by just having this discussion, which Eric, you're saying, you know, like, I want to set the foundation of genetics and you're both working to create that material. But it's like not many people have ever even heard that before or been exposed to that potential. So what a freaking awesome opportunity today. I'm just like psyched on this. Well, it's funny, you really put your finger on the double edged sword of what we can thank Japan for is on the one hand, it's a very narrow aesthetic goal toward which they all strive, which is forced on them this amazing amount of technique and focus on genetics. And Trident Maples is a really funny example of that. Uh, there are the average Trident Maple just will not make a compelling bonsai. It'll look like a quote bonsai, but you're not going to be able to make a great tree out of it. And that's your average Trident. It's actually hard to find great Trident genetics. And otherwise, it's twice as hard to make a beautiful tree. Half of the beautiful trees out there are just because they have good genetics. It's not necessarily the technique. But were the Japanese not going for that really narrow um, definition of what they are striving towards, we might not have had these levels of focus and we might not have had, you know, without their shared artistic artist statement, as we've talked about, um, they might not have come up with uh, the little uh, kernels of knowledge that we're uh, relying on today. It's it's kind of fun. Yeah, it would be tough. It would be tough to tap into uh, that microscopic of detail in in such a broad pursuit because bonsai, like, there's so much to focus on. You know, whether it is the technique or the design or the horticulture of it, it's such a three dimensional practice that, like, to really get to the nitty gritty of the genetic that gives you that small percentage leg up in the pursuit of this really perfect. 
uh, or as close to it as possible rendition of of this form. It's like, yeah, it's, that's that's just amazing. It always, you know, seeing the genetic diversity that comes from, and, and I think this is really where um, I'm assuming in the early 1900s and the sort of heyday of collecting in Japan, they had, obviously they did, because we know of Itoyagawa and Kishu foyer types, which were the pinnacle of the the genetics, the wildly diverse genetics coming out of the, the, the collecting grounds of Shimpaku. But, you know, in North America, Randy Knight being so prolific in his collecting, he's really empowered us to see the different phenotypes and genetics of of scopulorum of uh ponderosa pine of limber pine because certainly at mirai you know if there's 250 rocky mountain junipers there's really five predominant foyer characteristics and then you have outliers inside of that that are i think genetics worthy of being reproduced and propagated as defining you know, the pinnacle of Itoyagawa was that finest characteristic of several hundred juniper collected by a collector observing these things. Like that exists in Scopulorum, that exists in Ponderosa Pine, that exists in Flexilis. And it's really interesting without somebody as prolific as as a Randy Knight who's who's collecting those things and 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 holding them in a singular space to observe them like you guys are with your with your production and propagation. You'd never know that existed. You could only hypothesize at best, and it's and it's like really interesting to see how we've gotten to this place with Itoyagawa being dominant and and Kishu Juniper being dominant. Like th- th- seeing that road to get to that point, it's it's only recently becoming more clear to me how that is sourced from Yamadori in in the Juniper perspective. Yeah, and you can learn how they perform in your garden, which is nice. Eric and I have walked through the Rockies, and every single juniper looks completely different as you walk by, and you can see the types instantaneously, how radically different the foliar habits are. But how do they get better over time? How do they do in the container? It's it's only by having that stuff out of the ground and in your garden for a while that you find out how it behaves. Yeah. I've, I think I've collected about a half a dozen Rockies from largely the, you know, around the same area and they were all completely different even like being 200 yards away from each other yeah we've never had two that are the same of all the ones we brought back like we just don't see rockies that look the same and i i ended up i kept one that i got from randy uh but i'm gonna graft it because the foliage is just ugly as heck but the wood is great and then the other one that i've kept is uh actually gonna be in the expo and it has the tightest tightest little you know rocky foliage that i've ever seen in person uh probably akin to probably your favorites uh, that you've used and i would never graft it it's it's beautiful mm-hmm. it's a you know it's a different type of foliage than kishu or itoigawa it's a little harder to work with i think because it it doesn't want to hold itself up quite as easily uh but but it's beautiful and i wouldn't because the because the natural foliar characteristic is so nice I definitely wouldn't wouldn't graph that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 fascinating the discussion of genetics, but I think you, I think you tapped into something which is the the exhibition that is that is upcoming and and this major lift that you've uh, both chosen to uh, to try and get off the ground. Like uh, the Pacific Bonsai Expo, we're super excited about it at Mirai. I've been through uh, organizing uh, 
an exhibition before. How's it going? How how's how is this going? Where are you at? Are you still psyched about it, or are you are at you the point where you're friends? totally regretting it? Yeah, like what's well, this looking you know like? Exactly how we feel. Uh, <laughs> Eric, Eric and I checked in two days ago, and we were talking, and the one topic we both wanted to touch on was pretty much our takeaways from the Artisans Cup and how in all of North America, you're on a short list of people who can possibly sympathize with what we're going through. <laughs> when I it's heard, we appreciate that. So. This is a support uh, call. Yeah. Yeah. This is more, this is more for mental health than anything else. No, I, uh, when you guys bit it off, somebody asked me, they said, you know, did you hear that Eric and Jonas were going to do this? And I said, I, I, I had heard that, that they were thinking about doing this and I, and they said, well, how do you feel? You know, the artisans cup and this West coast. And it's just like, I think it is absolutely imperative that we have exhibitions of a high caliber, uh, in spaces where bonsai can be seen and appreciated at, at that level. Uh, and I just completely and totally respect that you guys would be willing to do this. And you have our undying support because it is, it is, I don't think until you've done it, you know, that anybody can appreciate just how challenging it is. I think it's, it's, yeah, I'm not sure that I really knew what I was getting into. And maybe that was the, the same boat that you were in. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like a good idea. That was where it stopped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, and it kind of starts off slow. And then it's almost like you're on a river headed towards a waterfall. And, and like the river ch just keeps going faster and faster. Yeah. And you're trying to paddle. So I it just, at this point, I think it's like 20, 30 hours a week right now. And I anticipate, for for, yeah, for each of us. Yeah. And, we're on the phone pretty much every day dealing with different things uh, day in and day out coordinating. I mean, we've got an army of volunteers that have been working on this uh, behind the scenes for what, like two months now. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And just coordinating the different volunteer committees it, itself, let alone things like, you know, contracts with the venue and insurance and fire marshals and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you ask how it's going. The short answer is it's going great, and we're absolutely tickled at the quality of the trees that came in. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. One of our big focuses for the whole thing has been we're not trying to do a show. We're trying to create a system that can reproduce a show over time. We know we can't do everything, and so we're investing heavily into this first one, and that's why we're really empowering the volunteer groups to do to really take ownership of some pretty important parts of the show. We have a draft of our book. The show book is mostly drafted now. We've got the design and layout done. We've got the program laid out. We've got the, the legal and kind of technical stuff in place. Um, but we want to be able to get to where we can create this uh, army that, can, that wants to kind of keep doing this thing without our input if need be. Right, right. Wow. So you started out with the ambition to create something that would continue, but not demand the same of you every time. That's right. And what's funny is that was kind of one of the initial things. So Eric and I were driving along one time and it might've been on the way home from the Artisans Cup. I think it was, yeah. And we were talking intently about how this kind of a show might work. Um, from the early Bay Island Bonsai Days, Boone's Club, we always were thinking, how great would it be if we had an exhibit that just take the best 30% of trees and put those in a room. How inspiring would that be? And so that was always kicking around in our heads. And then we got really explicitly on the idea of a big show. Well, yeah, we put on a great club show, but what if we just open it up to all the good trees in the area? 
and then just let whoever wants to come, come. Why have these artificial barriers that perforce make it a lower quality show by limiting who gets to go in there? Whereas, as you both know, once you're excited by bonsai that's well done, there's kind of nothing else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, you, I mean, what was the Arzen's Cup was 2015? Yeah. Yeah. So it's I been, still haven't recovered. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been seven years since we had a open juried show essentially on the West Coast. And I I have got to admit, I've actually never made it to the national. And and I, I don't know what my excuse is at this point, but uh, but I think we're kind of envisioning that it's going to be an every other year kind of thing, alternating years with the national show, uh, because Bill's done such a, you know, amazing job of getting that going and then keeping it going um, that it just feels like alternating different sides of the country every other year seems like a really uh, doable formula. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. Time, time, time will tell. And I think Bill's, you know, Bill's recipe for success was having that community around him that could help him execute this thing without, you know, just falling on the sword every time. And even then, I think the amount of energy it takes from Bill, I mean, he is truly bionic as far as like continuing to just maintain this like steadfast commitment to this exhibition that really much like the Kokufu, I mean, the national show is a huge driver of bonsai in, in, in North America. Even if the West Coast, because of the size and scale of North America, even if the West Coast, you know, isn't as highly represented as it could be, it's we still show up every time he does a show, you know? And even if Canada can't cross the borders, you know they're going to be there the next time that they can to be present at that show. And to have something like that on the West Coast is is a big is a big deal it, it is a big deal and the artisans cup was never geared to be an every other year exhibition that was really not yeah i knew i couldn't do that uh and, and nor did i nor did i aspire to do that um and after experiencing it i'm super glad i didn't try and set myself up for that because i would have you know gone down in a flaming ball of of, of failure but um but to know that there is going to be an exhibition of such a high quality which i think you touched on the juried nature of the Pacific Bonsai Expo was was where you had me at hello. It's just like, yes, to have a barrier, not a barrier, excuse me, to have a, a filtration of quality and know that you're going to go to a show that has had a lot of really knowledgeable eyes, making sure that the caliber is there, that the diversity is there, that the representation of approach is there. I, I feel like that's the step one in a in an incredible exhibition so we actually wanted to ask you what went through your head as a juror how do you kind of decide what you want to show to look like when you're sitting in front of a bunch of photos of trees some great some less great some all the same species some totally different um you know we kind of practiced jury did ourselves but you bjorn and bill were the official jury members and actually made the call of what trees will be showing up this fall and so what what's that process like for you oh man yeah well first of all i appreciated the confidence and opportunity to get to be a part of the jury uh for the show and you know having done the artisans cup uh that certainly that certainly um i think experientially uh, gave gave me a perspective of what because Michael Hagedorn and myself juried the Artisans Cup show and then we were 
both hands off for the judging and getting to walk through the exhibition after having been the jury. Uh, I think a good show serves you up the greatest amount of diversity at the highest quality. Uh, that that always ha- has sort of rang true for me with the Coke Fu um, walking through the specific years that I've been present for the trophy where I feel like that exhibition excelled in, in Belgium, seeing, you know, the UB exhibitions in Italy and, and and the years that felt like the exhibition really stood out. The the inevitable key to that was diversity, diversity of the highest level of size, of species, of conifer to broadleaf uh, to deciduous to evergreen, um, and then that shoheen medium sized larger tree form. That diversity was it is my biggest focus when I'm a juror. But of course. When you don't have a tremendous amount of of diversity, then the second then the second quantifier becomes that that quality. And if the diversity isn't of the caliber, then you have to lean into showing the diversity of form and shape at that quality that's expected. So that kind of is my hierarchy for being a juror is if you have 10 junipers and you've got two deciduous trees, the deciduous tree, or excuse me, 10 junipers and you've got two maples, you know, you might be showing a lesser quality of maple to the highest quality of juniper. And se- hey, Taft. Taft. Sorry, we got we got uh, we got the end of summer break, and Taft is uh, officially joining the brain bank up Welcome here. Welcome Taft to the podcast. <laughs> um, so there's like a balancing act there as a juror because you don't want to punish somebody with a great juniper and put in somebody some, uh, a lesser degree of maple and compromise the quality of the exhibition, but also you don't want to look at ten junipers and no maples. You know, so like it, that that delicate balancing act. I probably spent. 40, 50 hours. No, <laughs> <laughs> Ira was there. Ira was there kind of watching some of it. And he was, we were, we were bouncing over ideas. His shoulder a couple we were times. bouncing ideas, you know, and I'd say, gosh, I, I feel like this is a higher caliber, but we just don't have this representation, you know, and you make those judgment calls. And unfortunately, there are bonsai practitioners out there that have poured their hearts into submitting a tree that, that because there's 10 of them, there's 10 of that species and two of another, you, you know, the, the, they didn't get in. But a good show is different than a good tree. And, and, and I feel like the diversity was, was my primary focus. Yeah. One thing that you don't know is that you, Bjorn, and Bill chose completely different trees. Yeah. Uh, there was overlap on a small number of the best trees and only moderate overlap for the rest it was we were scratching our heads as each set of scores came in because they were so different than the previous ones but we were thrilled and you don't know that either is how it all got balanced out we were thrilled with how it all worked out across everybody but it took that kind of tripod of perspective to get to that it was funny yeah i mean each each of the three of you had a little bit of a different perspective and a little bit of a different idea i think on on what the show would look like and in the end I think that it it kind of the the three together became a really, really strong show. really strong show, yeah. And I That's think interesting. I I I think th- this was the whole idea with the Artisans Cup of the five judges, 
and even the idea of of Michael and myself being the jury, which you know I think led to to the Larch and the Vacuum Cleaner from David Crust, who you know we podcasted with, and he really he really expanded on how that was never intended to be a publicly seen bonsai, which made it all the more special for me. But you know, like some of those pieces getting in, and 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 some of you know that came from Michael and I's collaboration. But then the five judges having those different perspectives. Um, I think led to to you know the judging process being really rich. I'm so glad that that you got three different perspectives, and it is interesting to hear that we were coming from very different uh, points. But man, what a way to create an exhibition that has a more thorough, well-rounded approach to what people are going to experience. Because I think the quality of the the Pacific Bonsai Expo is is going to be reflective of that. Kudos to you guys. I was going to say, Ira, did you know that you and Ryan are both on the judging panel? That Actually, that's part of the questions. I've got a couple things jotted down here. I think, <laughs> I think we weren't uh, 100% aware of that when we first were looking at putting a tree in. And then I went back to, to read this. I think JP here was like, I'm pretty sure the judging is like a comprehensive of everybody who has a tree in the show. So that's right. if you we guys can talk about that, it'd be great. Yeah, we are inviting all of the exhibitors to join the judging panel. And there's a two-hour window on Friday from 4 to 6 p.m., the day before the show opens, when you'll have two hours to evaluate very briefly every tree in the room on a very simple score of one to five. So as we walk up and down the aisles, put down your scores, and we've got, I don't know, somewhere around 35 exhibitors. And we're actually building an app with uh, Dan Yamans right now to uh, tabulate all the scores. Oh, wow. Okay. And we've, we've done some dry runs. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of testing lately. <laughs> because we want to make sure that the, I don't know, call it an algorithm works. <laughs> yeah, as little bias as possible. And it's a, that alone is a much deeper topic than we had expected. It's been hilarious looking at and evaluating all of our test scores so far. Holy cow, it's like people have PhDs in math. It's crazy. Yeah, I know. Dan Yamans, when he brought out the Z-scoring method that calibrated all the judges and it completely altered, you know, and it was like a little bit too, it was like too, too it was like a lot too late. Yeah, but, but a little bit, a little bit. It was like, but what a, you know, I, I was like, well, that's great that that came out of it. It puts us in a little bit of a compromising position, but like, that's a great thing to grow on. I'm so psyched that you guys are, that he's, that he's still in it and contributing. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, I got in touch with Dan at the time of the cup, actually, and we've been in touch since then. And so he was only ever the obvious uh, pick to join in on that discussion. And it's, again, part of making it a more repeatable process that we can do this and answer as many questions. What's fun about putting on a show where you don't expect it to be the only one, you know you're going to make mistakes. And so you're just trying to measure as much as possible so that you can make as many improvements as possible down the road. Yeah. I think we fully expect to fail in at least one aspect of this show. I mean, I, I don't know that we know what that will be, but I, I certainly think that the scoring is a major hurdle in terms of just balancing the various aspects, because I think one of the things that came up in our conversation, initial conversation with Dan was, how do you have a data set that includes scores where people are scoring their own entry? It's kind of not a thing in normal scoring situations. <laughs> so, uh, and if it doesn't work, then we'll have to go back to the drawing board and, and design a new judging system because we, we really want the best tree to win. And we think that with 
35 judges in the room that the average will overcome any bias that uh, that is created by any one or two individuals. Yeah, and we're going to be publishing this course anonymously. So if you give yourself a five and everyone else zeros, we'll know it's you. But then if Ira does that with your tree, then we'll know that uh, Ira's just making you look bad. Like, th- So there are ways <laughs> to gain things. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have, and then we're going to track who is their own judges. And so if there is a very powerful pro my tree bias, that's going to come out. We can build around that next time. Uh, the other thing is this is more or less what we did in a uh, Boone's club for 19 years is the membership determined the winners and having tabulated about 18 years worth of that personally, the right tree normally won, but not always. And so our one refinement is it's not everyone going to the show. It's everyone with skin in the game who has yeah. actually gone to the effort and knows what it takes to maintain and prepare a tree at a high level. And we have seven or eight professionals on the panel. And so it's a decent group of people. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic block of people. But we also know there's going to be some variation in there. So we're kind of dying to see how it's going to come out. I mean, I think in order to have a tree in the show, you can't just be like a I mean, at least right now in the U.S., there's not very many people who just kind of walk up, plunk down $35,000 for a show quality tree and then and then enter it into an exhibition. Most of the people that are going to be there as exhibitors are pretty knowledgeable and have been doing things for many years at yeah. this point. Mm-hmm. So I think we're kind of counting on that level of knowledge to help with that judging process. The, the jury process, it sounds like you guys really feel like you benefited from having three different perspectives that are all very knowledgeable perspectives. Do you see a similar thing happening with 35 participants being a part of that, where people are going to have some different value systems on what types of trees they prefer or styles or aesthetics, et cetera, display? Like, how do you see that working? And is it about that- the tree or is it about the display? I guess that, that Oh, too- yeah, we should. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good question. And so we actually talked a lot about that. And at some level, we're going to leave it to people to decide, but our instructions will say, we want you to assign a score, taking into consideration everything in that six to eight foot display space. And we want the bulk of the score to reflect the tree. But if the display is kind of distractingly bad or unbelievably great, if you can suggest context, beauty, seasonality, whatever story you're telling, then that could be reflected in it all. But we do want the bulk of it to be the tree. Mm-hmm. However, we're not going to stand over anyone's clipboard and tell them how to fill that out. And you only have five choices. So you gotta you gotta yeah. you gotta actually use the one. Yeah. That's one thing we found <laughs> out in the test scores is that if people have a very hard time assigning ones to trees that have made it through this process, uh, fewer than half the trees got in for those who don't know. Like this is a very competitive uh, event and it's hard to give a tree that was better than half of the submissions not better but selected i should say among them to know that some of those are going to be ones and twos possibly yeah interesting yeah as so the the one through five are you referencing uh did that come from from the the manner in which boone and and you had judged his students had judged the bay island bonsai shows because that's a direct derivative of the japanese scoring system for the kokufu right yeah, uh, we did much more intense judging with Boone Show because he made this our number one educational opportunity of the year was to score. In fact, I've always thought of exhibits as the best educational opportunity that we all as practitioners have in terms of not touching the tree. 
Um, when you walk up to the tree, look underneath, see where the branches are coming from, see what makes it tick, thinking it through. What Boone had us do is an atomistic approach. We scored the trunk, branches, silhouette, container, and overall, and that forced people to think about different aspects of the tree. It also took too darn long. And so we wanted to both make an efficient approach that allowed us to score all of the trees in a timely fashion. I love the Tycon 10 approach. So for those who don't know for that one, they pull out three of the top trees in every category and then a judging panel, a smaller 10, 12 person judging panel determines the scores. And there's some funny things that go on there. Who gets to pick which the top trees are in a given category? That's the very political and challenging act. Uh, the other thing about Tycon 10 that's funny is uh, the actual judges are not professional bonsai people for the most part. Politicians, dignitaries, special people, it, it's, it's an interesting mix of folks. And so um, we're kind of going through the middle of all this where we do have the numbers and to Iris' point exactly, um, we have found in these scoring situations that trees that have great presence in the room and in general have good characteristics tend to do really well in this kind of judging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's always the outliers. It's always like, uh, you know, how many literati trees have ever won the Kokfu kind of a thing, you know, like it just isn't. Yeah. yeah. And so you, you sort of get that meat and potatoes as, as sort of the predominant for meat and potatoes in terms of a conifer or a deciduous that's that sort of draws like the, the, the widest cumulative, uh, acceptance as a, a, a winner, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we discussed early on because of that, exactly what you just said, basically, is like you kind of know what trees are going to win if the judging is done uh, consistently and and you don't end up with an error in the algorithm, at least. Um, We had issues come up at BIB where we weren't really sure that the best tree ended up winning. It was a point of discussion, if not contention. (laughs) But I mean, you know... It's, it's tough to get it right. It's tough to get the judging right. And I think that uh, we had some different ideas early on than what we ended up settling on. Yeah, the reason we ended up with five categories, uh, you know, three large categories, deciduous, conifer, and broadleaf evergreen, and then we had a medium category and a shohin category, is we wanted to incentivize diversity in the room. And we felt strongly about that. And toward that end, what Eric was suggesting is we originally talked about having people suggest prizes for us and sponsoring their own prizes. We talked about doing things like Tycon 10, where there would be a, an other category or a Bunjin category or a Psyche category, or just what, what have you, again, to incentivize that kind of diversity. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, depending on the result from the first one, that those yeah. very well may be added to the next round if it becomes obvious that we need to kind of encourage diversity of form more than just diversity of species or diversity of size because you can like you're saying bunjin tree is never going to win uh in almost any situation i mean i had a bunjin tree in the artisans cup there it would never compete against randy's tree right right, right. You know, like that's not so you have to you if you want to highlight those types of trees, then you really do need to create a separate category for them. Yeah. And that, that's, again, an educational opportunity. What characteristics do we look for in this category of species, in this category of style? And you can kind of go from there. 
Yeah, and it's, it's uh, this brings up two questions for me because I feel like if you put a literati form in a in a tokenoma display and then you put a big massive powerful tree in a tokenoma display, the literati stands a chance. But if you put a literati into a six foot exhibition display and you put a powerful tree into a six foot ex- exhibition display, the literati stands no chance. You know, and so like as you guys think about the evolution of this show, the Tycon Ten does a really great job of intermixing common exhibition display and tokenoma display and then you know you you have to in in the entry of your tree to the tycon 10 decide if you want to have it judged and and be in the judging and then you're now subject to a lot of the criticism and rigorous uh assessment of your tree the picking apart of your tree more or less and you have to live with whatever it, it you know is assessed of your tree um which is an interesting format that the almost the display space to some degree, although it's not considered in the judging, does inform the trees that are assessed as the potentially three judge trees. You know, so there's there's like that component that's really fascinating to think about. And then are you going to is there some way to provide people with the information of why that tree won? that I guess is a curious little moment when you have 39 judges. Um, why did that tree win as a takeaway? Because the risk that that we run in exhibitions is creating the same value system and construct that has led Japan to really sort of uh, formalize a, a, a economic value system around the shape and form of bonsai. And that was one thing I was radically aware of after the Artisan's Cup is I run the risk creating a show that has a judging system of creating the same formulaic economic value driving um, result. And that's really actually what's given me more pause than anything of doing another Artisan's Cup is not wanting to create a box around what is a valuable tree. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Um, And there's so many different ways around that. That's one reason we wanted to kind of democratize it. And so whatever the fashion and trends are, we have that. And when we looked at the different trees from you, Bjorn and Bill, that's a representation of what we would get with professional judging. In other words, every other show in North America is typically judged by very experienced and or professional judges. And um, there are only a tiny number of examples where we have multiple professional judges. And the cup, I think, did a fantastic job by having five very well-respected people that weren't super close to the trees in the room for the most part. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the gold standard. And that wasn't within our budget for the first show. And so, (laughs) but based again on what we saw from the trees you all selected, if we had you alone pick a handful of trees, that'd be fantastic. Bill Valvanis would choose three different trees. (laughs) It would also be fantastic, but there would be it's possible that there would not be perfect agreement between the two of yours. And Eric and I, as we started judging the show ourselves, we both felt that there were categories from which several trees were good candidates to take it all. It's really a matter of personal taste. But when you step back and think about what are the characteristics we look for in given species? What are the effects of time-based techniques? What does nature bring to it? What do we bring to it? there's some really good trees in there. And so uh, we're kind of dying to know. We're also curious, we are awarding a best in show to the highest scoring tree across all the categories. We're not at all sure how that's going to work out. And so we're very, because that's hard. 
And so we're really curious how that's going to go down. Yeah. Because basically, out of the five categories, the best in show could end up being a showing tree. Yeah. Because it's just based on the raw score or the process score, I, yeah. I guess. And in order to be eligible for the best in show, you just have to win your category, kind of like, I guess, yeah. a dog show. <laughs> yeah. Because it always feels weird to give a, if best in show is one tree and then best conifer is the second best conifer in the room, that always felt odd. So. Yeah. Yeah, totally. No, I'm, I, <clears throat> this is super fascinating talking with you guys about this because there's no way that you had not thoroughly thought this out doing a show of this level. And this is, this is why I think it's so valuable to talk about it because at first glance, looking at the judging system that you've chosen, it's like, oh man, okay, what what is behind this thought process? But knowing that Eric Schrader and Jonas Dupuy are, are, are organizing this show, it, it is not, it was not a superficial decision that you made to decide to judge it in this way. And now having heard you talk about it, I'm more interested and engaged than ever in what is going to come from this, which is like of paramount importance for people to be there and to experience this and to see this and to be a part of it because I've never seen a show judged like this before. Sounds like it takes seven years to figure it out. Yeah, I was uh, <laughs> 2015, whatever, what, whatever it took. <laughs> Whatever it, right. whatever it took, I can tell you being a juror that the, the quality of the trees is phenomenal. And then seeing what comes from such a broad group of educated individuals scoring on a system, because you've got that large number, even a small uh, one to five capacity to score, it's like it, it, all, it all starts to really make a lot of logical sense. And, and it's going to be really interesting. The fact that, Eric, you just said, look, a showheen could potentially be the show winner, which would never happen in an exhibition. That is freaking interesting, man. That is some cool stuff. Sounds like they might even be likely. I mean, well, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, there's only three showheen entries, but four? Four, I think. Yeah. Four showheen entries. Four, yeah. But some of the trees in now that gets back to the question of is it the whole display you're you're judging? Yeah. So it wouldn't actually be a single tree because the showing displays will have multiple trees. But I think Jonas and I were on the phone the other day and I just thought to myself, you know what, putting together an entire box stand full of showing has got to be one of the hardest things yeah. to do. Nightmare. It is. It is absolutely, yeah. it's just incredibly difficult. And you just don't know until you try it in light of knowing what the conventions are. It's, it's, it's And not even, yeah. not even, you know, not even taking into account like the hardline Japanese conventions, but just putting eight or nine or seven, I don't know, however many it is that you want really <laughs> good shohin sized trees together for one display and having them all look good at the same time. I I, I mean, I can't do it right now. I have like, I have, I don't know, about a dozen good quality shohin trees, but to get um, too many of them are junipers. Yeah. I can't put them all in the same display. Yep. Yeah. 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 Rock and roll, man. Yeah. Super exciting. That got me really, uh, that got me really excited. Tell me about the venue because I've looked at it online. Very, very beautiful uh, architectural. It seems like the light that's going to come in through such a significant amount of glass is going to really, really be a significant space in which to view bonsai. How'd you land on it? What's it all about? Uh, what, do you, what are you thinking with it? I think we have to give some credit to Janet 
Janet Roth actually uh, pointed it out to us. Yeah. It's kind of a new venue in a way because I don't know. It was it was about a year or two years before COVID started. The it was a Caltrans maintenance facility that was used for the trains that were originally going on the lower deck of the Bay Bridge from San Francisco to Oakland. And then it just got turned into a, you know, kind of a garbage dump for Caltrans. And a few years ago, Caltrans turned it over to the city of Oakland and the East Bay Regional Parks District. They went in and revamped the whole thing, turned it into an event space. And so you've got that just, it's my favorite thing, the, this mix of old and new, so the the floors are like a polished concrete, but there's all these things like we were there on a rainy day one time and there's like water leaking in under one of the doors. But it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's, but it's got these, it's got skylights. It's, you know, historical architecture, that old steel kind of look on the inside with the trusses mix of really interesting materials. And then the location. Yeah, if you put a dot in the geographic center of the Bay Area, it's kind of right there. And we were thinking just very practically, we knew that anywhere in the region within an hour of here is fine for the average attendee. But when we thought, where are the volunteers going to be coming from? And that's when we thought, you know what, this is a really convenient location. Yeah, and, it, you know, it kind of looks out over the, like, when you pull into the parking lot, you're actually looking at the ships unloading in the Port of Oakland. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the other side is the the Bay Bridge Toll Plaza, which is not quite as picturesque, I think, as the ships. But I'm a I'm a fan of industrial landscapes myself. So I, you know, especially ones that have been adapted uh, to be to be pretty in one way and ugly in another. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the architecture. When I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is. I I I definitely want to see my tree in that space. You, you know, that's and that for me is is just like a tangential personal thing to like put trees in in historical or um prominent architectural spaces. I think that's giving context uh or at least setting your expectation of the context and and the caliber of what you're trying to achieve. And I was really psyched when I saw the space to begin with when you announced the show, I, I felt like that set the tone for a very high quality exhibition from, from the very beginning. So I, 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 again, tip my hat to you guys for making that commitment because I'm sure it's not a small commitment to have this there. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a little more expensive than your average bonsai venue. Yeah. 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 And, uh, but it is a lot more charming than a hotel. Of course, the trade-off is there's a lot of variability when you're committing yourself to floor to ceiling glass weather is going to be really relevant as to how our trees all look on come show day and so eric and i actually visited the venue uh did 12 months to the day before the show because we wanted to know what precisely is the angle of the light where is this going to hit the backdrops like we literally were walking around holding up pieces of fabric all across where our rows had been planned out How's the light in this aisle, this aisle, this aisle? How's it from the north? How's it from the south? Because we just didn't want to have that kind of surprise. Mm. And we know it's going to be changing during the day, but we it was fun. We were kind of there midday when we get potentially maximum sunshine. And the lighting is going to be dramatically different on a sunny day in some rows versus others. Overall, the light in the building is fantastic, but it'll be more diffuse from the north. It'll be brighter and in some cases direct sun from the south and so it'll be really interesting to see based on the weather cloudy day it's going to be diffuse light nothing to do about that 
how does that impact the layout you guys decided and how does that impact like which which trees go where or what does that process look like we're in the middle of which trees go where now in terms of the layout of the room it's actually a very long narrow building and it's really only set up for um more straightforward layouts i will say that my first choice for the layout i actually wanted to create intimate spaces for seeing bonsai and here i'm giving away my secret plan i would love to do this where you could start dividing up trees whether by size by climate needs whether styles there's so many different ways to do it and you could give people this kind of guided experience like at the uh, saitama world bonsai convention a few years back uh, before you got to the main hall there were these great smaller rooms and they were just such neat intimate spaces where you could even have different kinds of displays, some table on table, some maybe using pedestals or podiums, some more naturalistic. And, and then we thought, okay, from a practical and a security standpoint, do we want to consider that? No. Next, let's do big long room. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a real, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm really, I'm really amazed and impressed how much you have thought about this as far as, yeah, the lighting and the layout and making sure all the trees are represented and displayed well because that is a huge thing that 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 only experience teaches you you've got to be ready for that and the security and the capacity to maintain a, a close watch over what's happening with the trees that is something that is overlooked a lot in bonsai cl- club shows and and exhibitions in general um yeah, and to, to to piggyback on what you just said, Jonas, that was also my thought for the if I were to do an artisan's cup again, would be to have it be more intimate, where you can see fewer trees from any single perspective and have an experience with each one individually, or at least in a small population, makes makes a lot of sense. And then you get to the reality that almost every exhibition is impaired by space. Um, which I think brings me to, as an exhibitor, you know, what do I need to prepare for in terms of the surface height that I'm going to be, I'm bringing two very large trees. Um, my stand obviously has to accommodate the surface that it's going to be sitting on to give that tree the presentation height. What are those nuts and bolts uh, as far as like this, the, the width of the space, the height of the backdrop, the height of the table, etc.? Because I'm sure you've thought about that too. We literally wrote it up yesterday, and the exhibitor contracts are going out probably next week at this oh, point. Oh, perfect. Okay, so coming. The end. Yeah, seven foot three backdrops. Um, extra large trees will go on four by eight foot platforms, twenty four inches high. Standard trees will go on thirty inch high, thirty inch deep, six foot wide tables, and that are yeah, thirty inch high. And so we know precisely yeah. what that is because we know that was really relevant at the Artisans Cup, mm-hmm. and so we learned from. Your example is, wow, where are we going to cram these really huge trees? That, we, was, that was the toughest part of the Artisans Cup is getting there and just going, oh, oh, shit. Yeah, it's a hard problem because you need to put all that in motion way before people are even submitting trees. That's right. That's right. That was, yep. was actually he was in one of the uh, accepted exhibitors garden recently and looking at one of the accepted trees and we're he like sends me a picture of the tree because we, you know, hadn't seen it in a couple of months since he submitted the, the photo. Yeah. And, and then we, he like sent me a picture of the tree from the side and all of a sudden we've got this tree that like, if you don't put it on even more than a four foot deep space, it's going to be the whole 
head of the tree is going to be sticking out into the aisle. Mm-hmm. Like it, it projects forward that much. So I think we, we really wanted to, you know, make sure that those extra large kind of trees that have such great presence in the room have a space that allows them to really shine just like a medium or kind yeah. of small, large tree. To, yeah. And to that point, we're going to take a page from Kokofu and larges will be together. Extra larges will be together. Medium and Shohin will be together. And so that way we're not going to put someone's Shohin display next to this big giant thing. There's a lot of trade-offs with that. And I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but we're going to give it a try this way so that we don't hear the gripe, common gripe, oh, the smaller trees get lost among the bigger trees. Mm-hmm. And it allows people, the, in that case, the actual context of we're focusing small, we're getting close right here, as opposed to being able to step back and see a little more. Yeah. And I mean, we're working on the materials, the exact materials we're going to be using for the backdrops and tables still, but it's, it's going to be very clean. That's like the look we're going for. And so we really want to highlight the trees. And I think we're looking for a darker backdrop because there's so much light in the space. We think we can use a a darker backdrop and have it work really well. And the other reason for that is that in case we do get sun shining onto a backdrop, that doesn't project shadows through to the trees that are on the alternate side of that Uh row. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So much to consider. Challenges. Challenges. <laughs> but this is this is the thing too, that it, it's just like until you until you really talk with um and hear from the two of you, it's like to know that this kind of intentionality and consideration is going into it, just just really it, it for me as a as a bonsai professional making the trek there, uh taking some very nice trees and and you know really wanting to like know what am i getting myself into hearing the intentionality is the motivation it is it is the it is the um it is the the carrot dangling in in front of me to to take part be there and i i super appreciate the efforts that you guys are putting into this. I, I I did not assume in any way that it that it would be any different. But getting to hear it and hopefully everybody that listens to this getting to hear it, it's really, it's really cool what you what you're putting into it. And it, and it's gonna be super exciting. It's an event people should should not miss. Have you have you gotten any idea of people from the East Coast, Midwest, throughout North America, Canada, other places coming? Like, how are you? How's the outreach going? Right now, it's looking like we've got people coming in from all over the country, several from out of the country, which is kind of blowing us nice. away. I mean, <laughs> we've got New Zealand, Japan, Canada represented already. Good. And, and uh, yeah, uh, it's funny just talking on a day-to-day basis with friends around the country to people in Minnesota. Oh yeah, our club's coming out. There might be, you know, five or 10 of us coming out. I'm like, oh, okay. And so we'll see what actually happens. But yeah, we're hearing from people in a very broad diversity of places that want to come out. Yeah. I've actually been blown away with some of the distances. Yeah. Fantastic. And and um, if people are coming from afar, is there a place where they can find hotel recommendations that would be close? Is that available somewhere? Where would they find that? Yeah, it's right on the website. Yeah, PacificBonsaiExpo.com. Yeah, PacificBonsaiExpo.com. There are 
luckily there's five really nice hotels all next to each other all five minutes away from the venue Great. yeah and there's maps as well as those specific recommendations with the names of the hotels uh listed on the plan your visit uh page of the website great great and then uh is there a way that people can follow the continued evolution how are you guys tracking this on social media any way for people to engage with show information evolution the the continued sort of march towards this i think we're now the tickets are actually on sale and we're locking down the vendors and the exhibitors with the contracts and whatnot, we are looking to start more of a concerted social media uh, push. And basically, you know, it's at Pacific Bonsai Expo on Instagram. I don't think we put up a Facebook page. Yeah. And then we're also both promoting it on our own platform. So I'm writing everyone about it at, you know, Bonsai Tonight at Bonsify. And so there are, on Instagram, by email, by a bunch of different ways. Um, we're going to share more and more of what things are going to be, how things are shaping up from here on out. Good. We want people to engage however they are, feel comfortable. People prefer different platforms. So we will be putting out things on different social media platforms as well as through our own channels. So, I mean, I've done a couple of YouTube videos and oh, podcast episodes. Pod, on the podcast podcast episodes. Yeah. And yeah, so we're trying to, you know, because... Some people listen to podcasts, some people watch videos, it's different audiences. Yeah, 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 cool. And do you guys have like a press kit? Like if uh, if if uh, somebody wanted to try and get the word out, I mean, Bonesheim or I, I mean, we would absolutely love to direct people to this. Do you guys have something we could disseminate information on a broader scale? The more the Bonesheim community shows up, the better for everybody. Yeah, there's, um, we kind of conglomerated a set of press resources onto a page on the website. It's the Press and Club resources page. It's not in the top nav, but if you go down to the footer, you'll see a, a link there. If you go to Pacific Bonsai Expo and go to the footer. Okay. Uh, and there's, there's photos there that we're encouraging people to use. Uh, you, can, you don't have to ask us for permission or anything like that. It's just sort of implied. Downloadable uh, flyers. Yeah, printable logos. Printed, printed home flyers, logos. Oh, yeah, uh, look, we're looking at it right now yeah beautiful wow well done well yeah. done november 12th and 13th yeah november you know it's 12th. funny we were taking a step back and thinking what really were some of the big takeaways for the cup you know in general just we're fortunate between the two of us we've been to probably a dozen shows in japan very different exhibits i got to help work on several of them shows all around north america a couple shows in europe it has been so helpful to see and to experience all these different approaches to exhibits. So it's, it, we're really getting a kick out of making it happen. But when we think of some of the deepest lessons, we're really from the cup. And what really, some of the things that you did really, really well are that, number one, you did not underestimate, underestimate the uh, excitement over outstanding bonsai. You did not underestimate the community's strength in terms of providing submissions and providing support, supporting the vendors and providing the volunteers that made that event even possible. And you did not underestimate the public, the general public's appetite for a bonsai show, something that they don't normally see on a given day. And I think you, a lot of people may not think about it, but going into the cup, I bet those were all open questions. Every one of those three questions because the national show was more of an East Coast thing at the time. 
And the other two hypotheses, we just had so few tests of them. Right. In hindsight, they were three grand slams. But as a planner, you probably had a good guess how all three of those would go, but may not have known until it uh, happened. And so we feel like we're massive beneficiaries to know with confidence. Yeah, people want to see amazing trees. We have incredible strength in the community in terms of their ability to submit trees, volunteer, and make these things happen. And we know that more and more the public is just really falling for bonsai these days. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually think the public is more hungry for bonsai than ever before right now. So mm-hmm. that you know the timeliness certainly, you know, hope ho- hopefully moving away from COVID being an in, in influence in any way, shape, or form, and I think people being more willing to engage in large large scale public events again like it's like the timing of everything for you guys might be ultimately serendipitous it might be ultimately yeah. serendipitous to to move into it but obviously you know the the work the fear factor the 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 role of the dice of doing something like this i i, I just want to continue to reiterate how uh, how much i respect you both for bite, biting this off and um and what a um what I think is is a is a thankless endeavor is just an understanding of, you know, the 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 power and positivity and servitude to the community exhibitions like this are. So you know, I say thank you, because it's it's giving us an outlet as people who are so dedicated to this art form to really present our work and our efforts and sacrifice to a degree. Obviously, we gain a lot doing bonsai, but to be able to present it and share it is like the ultimate pinnacle of what we do, you know, and without people being willing to take on this effort and, and level of uh, dedication to the art form, we don't get to do that. So I, I really appreciate you both and, and everything that you're doing. And I'm very, very excited uh, to come and be a part of it. We're looking forward to seeing you. Yeah. 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 We'll be rolling in force. We'll have a truck full of hopefully, you know, trees and accoutrements and everything else. But um, is there anything else that you want people to know about the bonsai expo before we uh, sign off? You know, I think to the social media point, I would encourage Mm -hmm. anyone who is coming, anyone who's excited about it to just tag us on Instagram or share, you know, in some other way on social media that you're coming and like talk to your friends about it because, you know, the community building excitement is, is that it's really what gets things going. And I think that, we're really excited when we see like uh, people saying, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be vending there and here's what I'm bringing, you know, and they're posting pictures of that to Instagram. It's just fantastic for us to see that. It's fantastic for everybody to see it. So, so share openly uh, as much as you, as much as you can, there's a great, you know, surprise is great, but if it's a hundred percent surprise, then you didn't, you don't get that lead in excitement. <laughs> yeah. If it's too much surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, to be sure. We will uh we will be we we did a stream on uh uh summer show prep on our on our elm that's gonna be in the exhibition and we're gonna be doing an, another stream on um coniferous show prep on our ponderosa here coming up soon just to hit those like markers for these trees and these species timing wise being ready for exhibition um and and i would encourage anybody out there as they're preparing their trees for this exhibition to be documenting that because that starts to become really fun seeing obviously as a juror i'm exposed to um you know 
at least my selections or or you know the trees that were in in consideration for the exhibition but i i can honestly say i think it's the highest quality of trees that have been in a selection process for an exhibition in North America to date. And so, you know, the the presenters sort of helping build that excitement. I, I, I think it's an easy lift to get people pumped to come see this thing because you're going to see you're going to see some of the best that North America has to offer in a single venue. Um, so anyways, that's how, how we're looking at it, because um it is fun to share the process and it is fun to be a part of the community that gets to do something like this. It's really, really rewarding. I think I have one more question that I was talking to Troy earlier and, and I know that we were on an email thread as a group about some potential uh, special displays or some things that were going to be on display outside of the um, like formal um, mm-hmm. show, I guess. And I know what one of those things that we were all talking about or, or in correspondence kind of ended up falling through for some different reasons, but is there any little teasers or spoiler alerts that we should uh, get people excited about? Any other things besides <laughs> rows I, I of awesome trees? I, I don't want to overpromise, but we are working hard on a couple of different uh, displays. I'm working in conjunction with other people uh, to put those together. So we are expecting that in addition to the judged portion of the exhibit, there that hopefully there will be at least two avant-garde installations um, created in collaboration with artists who are not bonsai people. Right. So each one of them uh, contains uh, high-level bonsai as well as art pieces that are not traditionally associated with bonsai. Yeah. Nice. That's exciting. Nice. Nice. Yeah, we there was uh there was there was there was big buzz about that sort of in the uh you know hushed conversations about it like what is this going to be? But that those are those are tough to pull together. So we'll we'll look forward to seeing whatever comes of that, but certainly the trees themselves are going to carry the weight. You know our goal is to have a whole bunch of these fun artistic displays and we figured, well, this is step 1. We'll start here with a couple. We're hoping that over time, more and more people want to do this kind of expression, and we'd love to provide the venue for that. And so over time, we're hoping to have more and more. So we're hoping that we're going to have a lot of fun with this step one and that we see more and more of this going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. So good. Well, thank you both for uh, taking the time out of your day. I know we're all busy. It's a Friday and uh, Bonsai are calling. I'm going to go water. I'm just watching the sun peek through outside. Um, but um we know where to find you. We know when we're going to all be there, and uh, we'll look forward to it very, very much. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, you guys. We'll Thanks, take, guys. Ca- t- take care, and uh, good luck with the rest of the endeavor. We'll see you in November. Great. Awesome. Awesome. Take care. See ya. <laughs>